Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue our first series as we explore the art of healthy longevity. And this is in conjunction with Cambridge University Homerton Changemakers Programme. And hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company I established with a number of colleagues last year. Today in studio, we have a fascinating guest. He's a psychologist, an academic, a published author, over 95 books, 1300 medical papers. He's a broadcaster and writes frequently in the Sunday and daily newspapers. He has a degree in economics from London School of Economics and a degree from Oxford, and he has no less than three master's and three doctorate degrees. He really is a truly learned individual, but also a very warm and empathetic individual who's got keen insight into personality, being a world-leading authority on personality. And I'm really interested to talk to him today about the psychological aspects of longevity, particularly as it pertains to the artists themselves. We've been listening in previous episodes of the podcast how art can help individuals live longer, healthier. But what impact does art and participating in the arts have on the artist's own longevity? And this is a question that we'll explore in great detail. So join me in welcoming to the studio Professor Adrian Furnham. Adrian, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. It's nice to be with you. Well, it's lovely to hear you. And I spent a happy couple of days doing some research on your background. And I noted that you were born in South Africa and then you did a, a number a degree there and then went to the London School of Economics, followed by three masters and three doctorates. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And then how did you get um, from all of that study all the way to broadcaster? And how do you combine everything? It would be really interesting for our listeners to hear about your journey and what the influences were. Mm. As you said, I, I grew up in South Africa. My parents were British who went out after the war. My mother was uh, a missionary and I was uh, well-churched. Um, and at school, of course, we had nothing like the options of uh, being exposed to um, psychology. But when I was in fifth form, I was going to do uh, maths at university. And she brought home one of these books written by Hans Eysenck. People will remember these. It was uh, Sense and Nonsense in Psychology and this sort of thing. They were very easy, well-written books. And I was completely captivated by this and read it from cover to cover. And at that point thought, I shall do psychology. I think you're very lucky, you know, when you discover early on when you're uh, disciplined, the, um, the the subjects that really light you up. I can remember at school, we had a master who was a vocational guidance master. In fact, he was a music teacher who had had a stroke and the headmaster gave him this job of vocational guidance. And he found some very old tests. Psychologists will know about these tests, uh, vocational guidance tests. And the, he did the test on me and he said, the two uh, things I recommend you become, either you become a, a journalist or you become a lawyer. Well, I didn't become either, but I do a lot of journalism. I'll tell you just that story briefly, because at school, I, I never thought I could write very well. And I was in a dinner party. I was about 30. I remember this distinctly. And a man sitting next to me said, he said, you, you tell a good yarn. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, well, if you can tell it, you can write it. Why don't you write as you speak? And that was an incredible revelation for me because I then wrote an article. I submitted it to the Financial Times. It was accepted immediately. I became a columnist. And from that day on, I've never looked back. And what I've done is, um, for instance, 
this week I've written an article on on Prince Philip and the idea of what's called repressive sensitization. You know, his his um, habit of saying, "Well, sort of get on with it, stop whinging." The psychologists for for a long period of time have um, have talked about this dimension, repressive sensitization. Which is best if you if something bad happens to you, should you try and get put it out of your mind, repress it, or should you uh, act as a sensitizer? After the war, you know, when soldiers came back from prisoner of war camps, uh, after terrible experiences, they were told not to talk about it. And this reflected the sort of Prince Philip attitude as opposed to the opposite attitude. Anyway, the the point of the story is I wrote an article uh, about this. Uh, It was 1,500 words, and it took me an hour and a half. I do it as I speak, you know. The idea is can you amuse somebody? I don't worry very much about grammar and that sort of nonsense. I can correct that in a moment. But you're telling a story. You're trying to engage people. And the first and the last paragraph are the most important. So I had the revelation that if you can if you can amuse somebody with a good story at a dinner party, then you should be able to write a good story. The two are not different one from another. And that that changed me considerably. So from that day on, I took to doing quite a lot of, of journalism, which I which I've always enjoyed. However, I should say that when you put your head above the parapet and make statements, uh, you do get shot at, particularly if you're controversial. And the the dilemma is that editors like you to be controversial because more people read you when you're controversial. But people can be very nasty. Um, I mean, the amount of hate mail I've had over the years is astonishing. But, you know, like everything else, you get used to it. And how does that affect your well-being if you get hate mail? Because you've gone from enjoying writing and it's being humorous and conversational to then getting abuse. That must be very difficult in this climate. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, you've had it for years. I mean, you just take you take on, you know, so I remember years ago pointing out that astrology was, you know, a, a lot of nonsense. Um, there's lots of evidence that it doesn't work. It's a lot of nonsense. And I talked about the explanation why people b- believe in, in astrology and indeed in graphology. It's called the Barnum effect, that you give people what is called high base rate information, which is true of everybody. So if I said, oh, you know, your chart says to me, that you're somebody with very strong emotions, which you don't show, people think, well, that's that's very insightful. It just happens to be true of everybody. Anyway, I wrote an article about this and got, you know, people, uh, you threaten people's careers because they're professional astrologers. So if you take a shot at, at any sort of issue, you get people really coming at you. Um, and it is, it, it, it can be quite hurtful. It's, I've known friends of mine stop doing it, just stop doing any form of journal because it's difficult not to be controversial if you're asked your opinion on, on certain issues. You know, the issue I've written about this week, Prince Philip approach is don't talk about it. It doesn't do you any good. Don't, you know, it's, it's um, uh, not healthy to air your grievances, particularly in public. It's embarrassing and, and unhealthy, which would be his approach, the oppressor approach, as opposed to the opposite one, which says, you know, let it all hang out. It's better to share it, etc. Now, if you come down on the Prince Philip side, then people will accuse you of male toxicity. And there will be people saying that this is extremely bad. You, all you're advocating is an old-fashioned male way of behaving. And you'll get into that. I know that will happen. It'll be, you know, it'll be a consequence of just mentioning this issue in public. So if you, are, uh, if you put your head above the parapet and 
come out on any side, even if you try and be reasonably balanced, you get you get hate mail. And of course, the web is now. Um, it's so easy. In the old days, could go to the pigeonhole, and there, if it was the letter was typewritten, you know, until about 2010, you you knew these were this was hate mail or nutters. But now, your your websites can be be flooded by it. I'm sure lots of people have had this experience. It's well, it is, and there's been so many people, you know, through social media, for example, you know, broadcasters, Miss Flack, who you know succumbed to this. So I think it has dire consequences, and you know, the number of programs, for example, Love Island, a number of those contestants, in fact, committed suicide through this negative effect of the hate mail, which has been propagated, I guess, through social media. Yes. Could you employ Prince Philip's approach of repressive sensitization to not <laughs> <laughs> listen to the hate yes. mail? Would that be a... Well, I, I, yes, yes. You know, uh, that they are... I mean, to give you another example, I and a colleague have been writing about conspiracy theorists for some time. I'm very interested in conspiracy theories. And of course, there's lots around at the moment. But if you write about conspiracy theories, if you even do research, if you publish academic papers, I've done some very serious and rather well-quoted academic papers on conspiracy theories, they come out of the, the woodwork and attack you. And uh, a colleague of mine, uh, my uh, the first author on a number of papers, has just stopped researching conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are very important. They have enormous consequences. We've seen that with, with COVID. And, you know, one what one's trying one's best to reduce the number of conspiracy theories because they're not good for anybody. But if you research this and write about it, certain conspiracy theorists will will take you on, get at you, which causes some people to, you know, depending on their personalities, uh, just leave the field. He's left the field, um, won't publish any papers on it at all because he's been so wounded by it. And it's surprising because these are academic papers. They are, you know, papers where you investigate people's theories. We even did one on, you know, Amelia Earhart, if you remember her. There's all sorts of interesting. Now, would you imagine to write a paper which is empirically based and data collected on Amelia Earhart would cause abuse? But it does because it's an example of a conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists have, you know, very strong views and uh, are very uh, suspicious of people in power or people in authority. So if you say I'm a professor and investigating conspiracy theories, then the assumption is that you are the enemy and perpetrating these untruths. So it's a, it's, it takes more courage than it used to, to write a simple article in a newspaper because people can find you and get hold of you. And if they don't like what you say, they can be extremely nasty. Well, there's an interesting connection here between the longevity of one's career as a writer, depending on subject choice, in fact, and actually one's personality. Now, you've managed to overcome it because of your natural curiosity, probably your sense of humour as well, which I know you've outlined as, as, as a counterbalance, and also a number of lifestyle choices. I, I read that, you know, you, you used to ride your bike to work. Do you still do that as a way of Oh, balancing? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I've, yes, I've, um, I've ridden my bike on my bicycle today. I ride everywhere. I I've written to Buckingham Palace and Number Ten Downing Street on my bicycle. It's it's the easiest way around London. Well, uh, th th go back to the longevity thing. It, it it's very interesting. I read a paper. You know how just occasionally you flipping through some journals and you read a paper. And this was it was a paper called Why Do Writers Die Young? Mm -hmm. And the author had looked up professions and year of death. And you you know you can go to Who's Who or whatever. You can get 
10,000 architects and 10,000 whatever. And look at the average date of birth. And he, he you know, most people, uh, we know how long people live these days. It's men are 78 and women are 82 or something, you, you know. But you can see this. And what was the discovery was that certain professions are dramatically less. Um, the lowest of all were poets. Poets had the, you know, of course, there are not that many poets and they don't always, they're not always successful as a poet. But writers in general um, had very short, well, not, no, it's not true. They didn't have short lives. They had 10 years less than the average of everybody else he looked. He looked at architects and at engineers and so forth. And so the question became, why was that the case? And others have subsequently looked at that. For instance, comics, um, uh, particularly stand-up comics. You know, there, there are interesting speculations as to why so many of them uh, committed suicide. Was, indeed, is it true? Is this, is this simply a reporting issue that we are wrong about? We believe because of you get, uh, what was his name? Uh, the American, um, I've blocked on his name, the uh, man who killed himself two years ago because he thought he had early oh, dementia. Robin, Rob, Rob, was it Robin, Robin Williams? That's right. That's right, Robin Williams. Now, you know, the question is, are we remembering very uh, um, specific events um, and therefore biasing it? Or is it true that people uh, die young and, and tend to get depressed? And I think the answer is twofold. First of all, there is there's no doubt that people, it's called in psychology ASSA theory, A-S-S-A, attraction, selection, socialization, attrition. And what it means is People are attracted to certain jobs. I was attracted to psychology. I was attracted to becoming an academic. I didn't want to become a dentist. I didn't want to become an aeroplane pilot. And so something in me, my motivation and my personality made were attracted to the world of academia. Then they selected me. I had something that they thought was right. Then they socialized me. They taught me how to become an academic. And if I didn't leave, if I didn't like it, I left attrition, attraction, selection, socialization, attrition. And this accounts for the fact that the joke about all actuaries are alike. I can go blindfold into a conference and I speak at many of these and I can tell you within the first 10 minutes, whether I'm speaking to lawyers, whether I'm talking to salespeople, whether I'm talking to engineers, they have things in common because of this homogeneity. They're attracted to that world and they are selected. And therefore, you have this homogeneity or similarity or lack of diversity. Now, the question is, to what extent your personality or some other factor led you to choose to become a writer and that that factor, that, that personality, that lifestyle was the major reason for the uh, fact that writers die young, or rather, or and as well, um, it's something about the lifestyle of a writer. And, you know, what the paper said was absolutely fascinating, that there is, in all jobs, there's, there's a product and process. So the product for a writer is a book or a paper or a poem or something. So that's the output, different from an artist, different from a musician, different from a dancer, different from a doctor. That's the product. And then there's the process of how you go about writing, producing the product. Well, the thing about writers is it's very, very lonely, very, very um, unsociable. Uh, you simply, there's you and the white page, as it were. Um, particularly if you're a writer of, of fiction, it's all about people, it's excitement. And you there sit alone in your garret day after day, trying to produce, you know, 70,000 words or whatever a, a novel takes. 
And it's very difficult. Where do you, you know, where do you get the inspiration? Um, it's lonely uh, activity. You don't get any feedback. You don't get any social support. And what one notices, if you look at very successful writers, um, they set themselves targets. So Graham Greene was a very successful writer uh, in all sorts of ways. I don't know if he was a particularly happy man, but he had strategies. So his strategy was to do 800 words a day. He locked himself in the spare bedroom, which he treated like an office. He did 800 words uh, until lunch, and then he spent the afternoon doing whatever he wanted to do, something different, something perhaps physical. And more than that, he had another strategy that was interesting, was that he left where it was easy to start again. So the next day, you could pick up where you, you left off. So he had him. He was the only man ever, apparently, to be able to tell um, publishers how many words his book was before they had word counts, because he counted the words, because he set them as as targets. So it was a sort of a lifestyle issue. But you know, many writers take to to drink and drugs to give one a little bit of excitement uh, in one's life, because it's 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 lonely. And it takes a very long time for a book. You know, I've, I've, I'm reading the proofs of a book now, which I finished last summer. So the gestation period. Now compare that to a dancer, where you are with a group of people all the time. It's also a, 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 an occupation where you have to be quite fit, and fitness is thought of as really re, re, relevant. It's, it's not thought of as relevant with writers who, you know, sit crouched at their computer in the old days at a typewriter or even with pen and paper. So there's how they do the job and the loneliness of the job and the requirement to be, as it were, exciting. And these are all factors, I think, which lead to the explanation for why uh, writers die young and poets even more so because of the, of the difficulty of writing poetry, which has to be so emotional, and yet you're doing it in such a cold and sterile environment. Yes, and they, in that paper, it also said how photographers had a, a more favourable lifespan compared to writers. And perhaps that was, you have to get to behind your lens, get to know your subject to make the most out of that subject. It's fascinating. Yes, and it, you, you interact with your subject. Not all photographers do, but they're, you know, uh, 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 painters. I had my, sounds very arrogant, but I, for my birthday some years ago, I had my portrait done. And the, the portraitist was absolutely fascinated. She insisted on having an hour-long conversation with me about me and my life and watching strange behaviours. And we, we talked the whole way through. In fact, it turned out to be a sort of a therapy session. She thought she was going to get some free therapy when we did the painting. But <laughs> you could see it, we built up a rapport. And she said the rapport was important for the painting. Well, I'm not sure if it was, but it was, you could see she enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. Now, with a writer, it's nothing like, being a reporter would be different, uh, a reporter. But then they would also have the tyranny of the deadline, you know. And one of the stresses in all jobs are, like cooking, uh, are, are deadlines. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not the news at 10-ish, it's the news at 10 bong. Yes. And you have to have your, you have to submit your, I remember having to do this some years ago. I had to submit 1300 words by five o'clock. And it was, you know, it was 1300 words and it was five o'clock. It wasn't 1400 words at 10 past five. It was, and that, that can be another form of stress, which most write, which in some occupations, of course, people have great deal. 
my wife, we went for a walk this afternoon and saw people outside in restaurants. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a very stressful job, being, uh, being a restauranter, being a cook, because it's remorseless, it's very time-constraining. You're meant to be um, perfectionistic under these stresses. All these are particulars. And of course, what cooks do is they have, they, they, uh, chefs, they tend to have a high and then come down often with too much drink afterwards. They come down quickly and they will often tell you that at midnight and then they eat badly. Mm-hmm. So you have this, this lifestyle, the occupation leads to the lifestyle, which um, has a very deleterious effect on health. Yes, and, and your words were echoed by Christopher Wilkinson, um, a, a notable architect I interviewed some weeks ago, who you know exposed the, the stresses of actually delivering a major building like one Blackfriars or the Dyson headquarters. And he uses art, watercolours, line drawing as a counterbalance that every single day he draws and he finds it incredibly mm. relaxing and it counterbalances the stress of his delivery, even though he's using his artistic um, creative powers for work and for relaxation. That's interesting. Uh, to find something that relaxes you, uh, uh, Philip painted, Churchill painted. Churchill mm. said heaven would be a painting school. And it's it, to find a, a way of calming down, expressing your inner thoughts. It, it happens for different people in different ways. You know, Some people simply walking the dog is, is good enough. But it's important to find them uh, and not rely on booze and, and other things, which is which is very easy and in some situations very um almost obligatory it's you know it's part of the way the organization deals with its stress which is which is not healthy well i'm hearing strongly from you that you know that there is stress in every occupation it's how you deal with it that could ultimately impact on your longevity like we've seen in the example of the artists and you know what we've been speaking about for the last couple of weeks is how art can help people but this is a different perspective how actually the artists themselves give so much joy and longevity to the people who view their work but they themselves can suffer in the opposite direction which is really fascinating yes I'm sure that's the case. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the other um, important aspect of this podcast is that we are doing this in conjunction with Cambridge University and Homerton Changemakers. And, you know, everybody will get a, a very good education who goes to Cambridge. But what do you do with that education and how do we train leaders of the world? And this is an aspect I wanted to bring out in this discussion because you're an expert on personality. You have a great insight into longevity and how to deal with stress. You yourself have a flourishing career. So what would be your advice now as we emerge from the pandemic in terms of how the students can harness their knowledge to actually make this world a better place? Gosh, um, okay, let's let's deal with the personality first. I think um, self-knowledge, self-awareness um, is terribly, terribly important uh, at any stage of life. That's all the um, the great Greek philosophers have, have, have pointed out self-aware. So being aware of your personality. Personality is about preferences. I always say to people, if you want to understand personality, pick up a pen with your non-preferred hand. If you're left-handed, pick up a pen with your right hand and write something and tell me what that's like. And and they say, oh, it's slow, it's clumsy, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's not natural. I say, well, that's what personality is. It's about the way you prefer to, to work. I was doing a, uh, a podcast this morning about introversion and extroversion and the difference between the two. And, you know, what's interesting is people don't understand that introverts are not necessarily shy, inadequate, 
people who can't get on with others. The explanation for extrovert, introversion and extroversion is arousal, is stimulation. I say to people, and I'm sure you'd know this, you say, well, you've heard of ADHD. They say yes. And I say, well, you know, what are ADHD people like? Well, they're, you know, they are impulsive and excitable and they can't concentrate. I say yes. And we give them a drug. What is the drug? The drug is called Ritalin. Now, is Ritalin a stimulant or a depressant? And most people say, well, it must be a depressant, mustn't it? You calm them down, you knock them over the head. And of course, you and I know that Ritalin is a stimulant, quite a strong stimulant. So how do you explain that? Why should you give somebody who is, who is not paying attention, who can't settle down, why would you give them a stimulant? Precisely because their behavior is stimulus-seeking. They are seeking stimulation. And therefore, you, you control their stimulation pharmacologically. Now, it's exactly the same with introverts and extroverts. Extroverts are under-stimulated. Therefore, they seek stimulation. They like working with other people. They're good at social contact because other people are a source of stimulation, whereas introverts do the opposite. Now, it's not as if you're one or the other, but your introversion, extroversion, if you're an extreme case, can have a very important impact on the way in which you do your job and the requirements of your job. I think at work, what's very interesting is, from my experience is the number of very successful business people who are really quite introverted. But the psychologists call them socialized introverts because they've learned to behave apparently like an extrovert. They, they, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and go to dinner parties and do all the things that extroverts like doing. And they don't do them, obviously, so easily, so naturally. They learn to do them, like learning to do a foreign language. And so your personality, introversion, extroversion, is one of the most important factors. Another one, more crucial, the two personality variables which have most impact, I think, on your career are what psychologists call neuroticism or low adjustment or resilience and conscientiousness. Let me say a few words about neuroticism. We all get stressed at work. That's not very interesting. The question is acuity and chronicity, how often we get stressed and how deeply we get stressed. All sorts of stresses at work. You know, we talked earlier about uh, the stress of getting uh, hate mail. Well, the question with with uh, neuroticism dimension is you could call it moodiness or instability. It's the extent to which we do get stressed and how we react to that. We are prone to uh, anxiety, depression, hypochondriasis. This is a personality variable, and it's one that doesn't change. I'm afraid I am a pessimist. The psychologists talk about the plaster versus the plastic people. Is personality set like plaster at age of 25? Is what you see what you get? Or is it changeable? Is it more like plastic? And I know that personality changes over time, but not much. You know, as we get older, we get slightly less uh, introverted. We get slightly more conscientious. But I don't think it changes very much over time. Therefore, it's important, and I don't think it's easy to change. I mean, if you went to a psychiatrist and said, doctor, doctor, I'm I'm a neurotic, can you cure me? He or she wouldn't say, yes, I can cure you. They would say, I can teach you how to cope with your neuroses better. I can teach you, you still will have, you still will be a warrior. You still will be vigilant but I can teach you to cope better. Now, I think, therefore, what what the psychologist would say to the Cambridge graduates is do uh, an audit, um, let somebody help you, perhaps, 
of three things. One, your uh, personality, uh, your uh, personality variables. And I would include what psychologists call bright side and dark side. That is your personality and also the personality disorders, uh, whether you've got a hint of OCD in you, whether you have uh, a worrying amounts of narcissism. So first of all, look at personality. Then I would look at ability. Um, and this is intelligence. Um, the, the graduates, by definition, they went to, uh, to, to Cambridge, will be very, very bright. But an intelligence uh, is not broken up into multiple intelligences. But there are slightly different forms of this. Uh, it's called fluid intelligence versus crystallized intelligence convergent thinking versus divergent thinking. And we remember C.P. Snow and the famous two cultures. You know, when you sit next, I remember going to High Table at Cambridge, indeed, and sitting next, on the one hand, to an art historian. And on the other side, I talked to a geophysicist. And I was the psychologist in between. Now, the question was, were we all bright enough? Yes, we were bright enough. But we looked at the world slightly differently. We used our intelligence in rather different ways. Um, uh, were we more convergent in our thinking style or divergent? Now, to find out where the way in which you think, not that you can think, is, I think, rather important. So know your personality. Check your the, the sort of tasks you like doing. Are you? Would you prefer crosswords or Sudoku? If you like Sudoku, become an engineer. If you like crosswords, become a, a lawyer. And then thirdly, and this is the hardest one of all, insights into your motivation. We psychologists are not good at measuring motivation. And the reason is twofold. One is not that people won't tell you, but they can't tell you. You know, what does motivate me? People have asked me why I am, how I am driven. I'm Apparently, I'm driven. And I say, well, three things motivate me, fun, money, and data. So is the activity going to be a lot of fun, in my view? Well, I'll do it if it's a lot of fun. Does it supply data? Well, I'm an academic. I love human data. And money. And so if there's a lot of money, it doesn't have to be a lot of fun. If there's a lot of fun, I don't need to be paid a lot. But to have insight into what really motivates you, is it, is it power? Are you motivated by power? I remember, as I said to the Queen, I don't like name droppers, but I did meet Mrs. Thatcher. And she, it was obvious to me that she was incredibly motivated by power, not awards, not affiliation, not, not, not particularly respect, but power. And if you have an insight into that, into what really floats your boat, as it were, then you can choose an occupation which speaks to that motivation. So... To, to answer the question in a rather roundabout way, um, how good are you? How insightful are you about your your passions, your abilities, and your uh, personality? And therefore, can you choose a world where you get a better fit? You know, vocational guidance is all about fit and doing a job which comes easily and comes naturally and involves in a sense, very little effort. You don't, you, you know, um, there are all jobs that require you to do things that you don't particularly like doing. I have always said to people, from my childhood, my, my mother uh, being this missionary, I was always taught to try and find what your weaknesses are and then confront them and, and improve them. So if you can't do something, learn to do it better. Well, I've changed my mind. I think what you should do is find out what you're good at 
and enjoy doing and do more of it. Don't spend a lot of effort and time doing things you don't like doing. You know, it's, I say to people, people sit in, uh, and they, they sit on courses called financial management for non-financial managers. And you see everybody who reaches some level of leadership has to go on one of these courses. And I said, well, did you enjoy it? They said, no. I said, well, that's why you're not a financial manager. <laughs> You've summarized it so beautifully that if you know your own personality, you know your motivation and you know your the confines of your ability, then you can harness that to do great things in the world. And, and you've expressed that beautifully. The, the fit, I think, is a good word for all those three elements. And that doesn't apply just to Cambridge. That's to anybody, graduate or non-graduate. Yes. The question is, you know, can somebody help you with that? You know, who knows you best? Who's got an insight into your into your potentiality. And some of your friends, you might be lucky, you might have friends who are themselves got insight and give you good feedback. But what you often discover that people quite late in life, I remember uh, I, I was at Oxford, not at Cambridge, and I had a girlfriend who was an Egyptologist. And she was very clever and good at Egyptology, but eventually she became a psychiatrist, that it wasn't the right fit. And you know, it, it takes time. And you. I think you're lucky if you read at university the discipline which really speaks to your passions. The British system doesn't, isn't, well, I think Oxbridge is more flexible than most, but you, you'll be surprised by how many people sort of switch track, not because the degree doesn't lead to anything, but simply they find something else really excites them, which is why I think it's always a good idea to try something out, to go on a short course, to see if it does something for you. Because then you just, if you can do a job where, you know, people say to me, you work very hard. I say, no, I don't. I've never worked hard in my life because I, it, it's not work that I do. I, I have fun. I happen to be paid for having fun. I like writing. I like doing what I'm doing. You have your ikigai, as the Japanese would say, you, you make money and you make your living from what your passion is. Exactly, exactly. And, and passion is about something which it's exploring your talents. It's exploring things that come easily to you, that, that you enjoy doing. You know, the, there's work on intrinsic motivation. And one of the most important things with careers is, of course, chasing extrinsic factors, chasing, chasing money. I always used to say to students, well, Tell me, you know, let's say you earn 150000 a year, which is what the prime minister earns. What would you do with it? What do you want the money for? And what the psychologists say about intrinsic motivation is a mo, a mass, a mat, you know, amateur. There are three factors that are important. First of all, it's autonomy. One of the great perks of being an academic, or at least used to be, that you had quite a lot of autonomy. Nobody told me to write 95 books. Nobody told me what to write the books on. I have a lot of I have a lot of autonomy where and when and how I do things. That's a very very attractive thing. Secondly, does the job speak to your skills? Are you are you, have you got a sense of mastery? Are the talents that you have and we have different talents. We're not all equally talented, but we probably have some talents. Are we speak? Are we exploring those talents? And do you find purpose in it? Now, if you can find a job which gives you autonomy, speaks to your talents, and gives you a sense of purpose, hey, you're on a winner there, stick with it. 
Yes, I think that is the essence of, you know, that combination which will lead to change in the future, because by doing what you're happy with and you're best at and you're passionate about, it can only lead to a good outcome, provided you have the morals and the ethics to do the right thing. And um, we all know that entrepreneurship, for the most part, is productive, but sometimes it can be unproductive or indeed destructive. Yes, I've been very interested in, in entrepreneurs. I Years and years ago, I had to give a talk um, for Barclays Wealth, and it was to millionaires. It was in the, um, it was some Isle of Man or somewhere like that. What fascinated me, this is a, a very long time ago. And they were all, they were all, they'd set out not to make money, to be good at the job. They they built up their own companies and sold it. And I thought, you know, one of the things I've noticed about successful entrepreneurs is that the passion is not in the money that results from selling the company and moving on to the next one. It's in doing the job better and doing the job right. Uh, it's difficult being an entrepreneur. They, you know, they do have a curious um profile, particularly the more successful ones, and they don't make very good managers. What you notice is that clever uh, entrepreneurs start businesses and then hand it over to somebody. They, they, they don't manage the business. They let somebody else manage the business because that's not they're good at. They're good at starting stuff. Startups are different. I can remember when I was a, a, a PhD student, the the, the the bright young things at Oxbridge then, they all wanted to, there were three things you wanted to do. You wanted to go into the city and make a lot of money, or you wanted to go into into government, into the cabinet office, or you wanted to go in, uh, what was the other one? I think uh, the B, oh, that's right, the BBC. These were <laughs> the places people want, wanted to go. No, nobody wants to do that anymore. They all want to do startups. They want to wear jeans and sit in their basement with their laptops and, and make a million. <laughs> well, it's something that I know a little bit about because I'm actually an entrepreneurship student at Cambridge University, which is how this whole podcast came about. And I set up my startup, which is a digital healthcare company called Iona to enable clinicians send the right information to the patients at the right time. And it's been a fascinating journey and it was born out of a clinical need, but there is the agony and the ecstasy. There's in the same day, you can have your best day and your worst day. And it is a difficult road. And all of the things that you've talked about were taught in our course um, on how to do it better, you know, be successful. But really, there's no magic winning formula at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. And there's, a, I mean, the great difference between successful entrepreneurs and unsuccessful entrepreneurs is recovering from failure. Yes. Um, they've all Everyone has setbacks. You know, you watch your Dragon's Den or whatever you find interesting. They've all had quite significant setbacks. The question is what you do with a setback. I, one of my cleverest students, um, a PhD student, is now a multimillionaire. And what was interesting about him was when, when something went wrong, you got a paper rejected or something. It was the way he recovered. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was you, you look at this issue. What can you learn from this? What are the what what should you not do the same same thing again? What are the le lessons from this? Have a half day of of emotional recovery and move on, mm -hmm. move on. And that that always struck me. It was it was the recovery from failure that was the, one of the best markers of long-term success as an entrepreneur. Well, the very first words that Jeremy Hutchinson, who's our program director at Cambridge, said was, "The important thing is." 
not to be afraid to fail. And I'll never forget that. And it really is true. And I think that would be a, a very good note to close this part of the discussion on, because I asked you how what advice you have for our change makers and our graduates and general public who want to make a difference. And it is really to try and not be afraid to fail and harness your personality, your ability, your purpose in life, get the right fit and focus on what you want to do and make a difference. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Adrian. It's been such a, an interesting discussion. I actually could talk to you for hours on end. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to my audience for listening. And join us next week for another fascinating guest, Professor Timothy Spector, a professor at King's College Hospital, who's known for the COVID symptom tracker, but has written quite a number of books on genetics and diet. And he's really disrupting how the world sees their health and well-being through food and academia. So I think that will be a fascinating discussion. And if anybody wants to give some feedback, please feel free to email us on hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.